Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present, and this is followed by a question-answer period for deeper engagement. I think you will find this discussion to be both informative and provocative. This program is moderated to be politically neutral. Our speakers will give their opinions, and then we encourage you to make up your own mind. This week's topics include autism, reading comprehension, social injustice, Me Too, and European politics. Our first presenter today is Simon Baron Cohen, who is a professor of psychology at Cambridge University and is the director of the Autism Research Center. Simon is the author of the book, Pattern Seekers, How Autism Drives Human Invention. Our second speaker is Daniel Willingham, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia. Dan is going to speak today about three areas of his recent research, the importance of storytelling, teaching reading comprehension, and the damage of not having in-person schooling. Dan is the author of the book, The Reading Mind, a cognitive approach to understanding how the mind reads. Our third speaker today is Noah Rothman, who is the associate editor of Commentary Magazine. Noah is the author of a, a brand new book entitled Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. Our fourth speaker is Brandy Stellings, who's a very dear friend of mine. I met Brandy and her husband, David, when our daughters were in kindergarten together. Brandy is a principal at Best Relate and is an expert in diversity and inclusion. Today, Brandy will discuss the role of Me Too in a corporate setting. Our final speaker today is Nicholas Varen, who is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute. I've asked Nicholas to discuss Brexit, European politics, and European banks. All right, let's begin with Simon Baron Cohen from Cambridge to discuss autism. Go ahead, Simon. Thanks, Larry. So as you mentioned, my new book, The Pattern Seekers, uh, it looks at a big question, which is whether there's a link between autism, the disability, and the capacity for invention. And in the book, I lay out the evidence that shows that there are links. But uh, today I'm gonna to start with the question of when did invention begin? Because it's very clear that our ancestors, even two million years ago, could invent simple stone tools like axes and hammers. But for millions of years, there was very little evidence for what I call generative invention that is the ability to invent in multiple ways, not just as a one-off. But then about 70 to 100,000 years ago, when Homo sapiens was on the scene, the rate of invention suddenly took off. Suddenly we see the capacity for generative invention. And I argue that that's because a cognitive revolution had occurred in the human brain. In particular, there was a new circuit in the human brain that I call the systemizing mechanism. And what this allowed was for humans to look at special patterns in the world. Uh, I call them if and then patterns. That if I take something and I do something to it, then I get a particular outcome. So what the systemizing mechanism allowed us to do was to find the pattern, and then we could vary the pattern by experimenting with the if or the and. And when we produce a new pattern, basically that's an invention. And this was a kind of algorithm in the brain that allowed invention to be generative or unstoppable. We know that the systemizing mechanism uh, was in the human brain 70,000 years ago because if we look in the archaeological record, we see artifacts like the first bow and arrow. So our ancestors 
our ancestor who made the, the bow and arrow was using this if and then algorithm. If I attach an arrow to a stretchy fiber and release the tension in the fiber, then the arrow will fly. But if I attach the arrow and pull the fiber back further, then the arrow will fly further. So humans were experimenting and inventing. And just to take one other example, 40,000 years ago, we see the earliest musical instrument that's ever been found, which was a flute made from a hollow bone from a bird. And this ancestor who made it, again, was using if and then logic. If I blow down the hollow bone and cover one hole, then it makes a specific sound. But if I blow down the hole, sorry, blow down the bone and cover two holes, then it makes a different sound. So again, we can see humans were experimenting and inventing. But back to the big question, is there a link between autism and this capacity for invention? Well, in our research, we've looked at over half a million people in the general population and found that those people who work in STEM, science, technology, engineering, or math, have on average more autistic traits than those who do not work in STEM. So this shows a clear link between our aptitude in understanding systems and a higher level of autistic traits. We've also looked at 36,000 autistic people. Again, it's a, a very large online study and found that they score higher on systemizing, that they are what I call hyper-systemizers, strongly attracted to understand how systems work. And then we've gone on to ask the question, is the link between autism and systemizing genetic? So we asked 56,000 people to give us a DNA sample, and we found that the genetic variants associated with being a strong systemizer overlap, overlap excuse me, with the genetic variants associated with autism. So what this is telling us is that some of the genes that cause autism also cause talent in systemizing or pattern recognition. So this led us to a prediction um, that autism might be more common in places like Silicon Valley. Well, as you can hear from my accent, I live a long way away from Silicon Valley. So we went to test this in the Dutch city of Eindhoven which is the Silicon Valley of the Netherlands. And what we found was that autism rates were twice as high in Eindhoven compared to two other Dutch cities that were not um, IT hubs. So again, this is consistent with a genetic link between autism in the child and a talent in pattern seeking in their parents. So I think I've shown you we've got lots of, e lots of evidence that the genes for autism have been driving human invention for at least 70 to 100,000 years. Okay, Simon, thank you. Uh, we're going to go straight to the question and answer section. Um, sure. Let me open with a question about um, why is it do you think that autistic people are good at systematizing, which is, I guess, core to the question. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so um, what we're discovering is uh, that this is for genetic reasons, 
you know, that their their minds are wired differently, that they don't necessarily uh, understand people as well as other people, but they understand patterns in the world to a higher level, that they have very good attention to detail, and they they look for rules in the world. And we think this is for partly genetic reasons, uh, changing the way their brain is developing. In your book, you mentioned that uh, men and women's brains, uh, as relates to systematizing and empathy, are, uh, are different, that there's more systemization in males and more empathy among females. Um, yeah. How, what does that distribution look like? And does that follow then that you would see more autistic children who are male than female, given that maybe that's just a different, closer to the problem in that standard deviation? Yeah. So, um, you know, this is obviously uh, um, an, an area that's, you know, quite sensitive because, you know, any time you look for sex differences or gender differences in the mind, um, it very quickly becomes like a political issue. But if we just look at the science, you know, that big study we did of over half a million people, we, we did look at both systemizing and empathy, and on average, males score higher on systemizing and females score higher on empathy. So it's just, we're just talking about on average. It doesn't apply to all males or all, all females. You know, so we shouldn't prejudge anybody's, you know, the, the kind of minds that they have based on their gender because an individual, of course, could be atypical for their sex. And then, you know, to your other point, this may, this may have relevance for why autism is, uh, is more common in males, uh, which it is. I mean, uh, if you look at clinics, you know, about three times as many boys are diagnosed as, as girls. And again, it, you know, one, one view is that autism is an extreme of the typical male mind. Hmm. You mentioned in the book that you were considering doing a study among MIT graduates to see if um, they had significantly higher autistic rates, uh, but you got pushback mm -hmm. from the head of MIT, the president of MIT, denied it. Um, why do you need permission yeah. from MIT to, to do an analysis of MIT grads, first question? Uh, and the second question right. is, you mentioned that um, MIT went co-ed and that therefore, um, after one co-ed, there's a greater likelihood that you would marry someone from uh, your own school, and that would significantly increase the rate of autism uh, due to similar uh, genetics. Can you comment on that as well? Yeah. So, you know, on the first question, you know, why did we need the permission of MIT? Well, what we wanted to do was contact the alumni of MIT, so go through their alumni association. Um, so that's why that's why we needed uh, permission from the university, um, and and we had to go through their IRB, their their ethics committee. Um, but the reason you know the reason why we wanted to do this was that informally, anecdotally, members of the alumni were saying that autism rates were much higher amongst their kids than in the general population. So autism is about one or two percent of the general population. But anecdotally, MIT parents who, who were both at MIT, so both with an aptitude in understanding systems, you know, working in STEM subjects, 
um, you know that, that, uh, that you know they're they're reporting higher rates, and this could be again um, reflecting a genetic link between uh, aptitude in understanding systems and likelihood of uh, of having a child with autism. But you know what we did was we went that that study I just described in Eindhoven, in a way gave us another opportunity to test the same question. It wasn't about MIT; it was about the scientific question. Have you thought about um, doing a, a study like, let's say, uh, pick a university like the University of Illinois. I'm from Illinois originally. Um, it has an engineering school, it has a business school, and a liberal arts school. Wouldn't it be uh, interesting to do a study where you compared the graduates of, let's say, the engineering program versus the liberal arts school to see if there was a radical difference in um, autism among their progeny? as a way of doing yeah. that. Absolutely. So, you know, so again, this relates to your previous point that um, these studies could be conducted in other universities. You know, here in Cambridge, where I am in the UK, we've looked at students in the math department versus students in the humanities and found that students in the math department have a higher number of autistic traits. So again, a link between a talent in mathematics, which is a, you know, an example of systemizing, and uh, the number of autistic traits you have, but also the math students had um, a higher number of siblings who were autistic. So again, pointing at the link between mathematical ability and autism being a genetic one. We had a um, a discussion a few weeks ago on what happens next with Professor Ernie Freeberg from the University of Tennessee. And he had written a book on Thomas Edison. Oh yeah. And, and the question was, you know, why was Edison so successful? Um, how much was really related to him? How much was uh, due to, to his good uh, laboratory? How good was he at taking someone else's invention and then taking it to the next level? The example he gave was mm. that there were five guys working on the electric bulb, uh, but he also worked on the grid. And so he was able to create a power system and then run, have a, uh, a runaway with it, if you will. Uh, in your book, yeah. you discussed yeah. Thomas Edison a great deal, uh, but you came at it from mm. almost a completely different perspective, um, not so much working on lab work as on his systematizing and aggressive approach to, uh, to learning in terms of, of repeating different experiments. Can you comment a little bit about exactly. why you think Thomas Edison is a perfect example of both inventive behavior and his autistic traits. Yeah. So, you know, we, we know of Edison famously for having invented the first electric light bulb. But as you point out, he was inventing unstoppably. You know, he had over 100 patents, I think, to his name. So he was kind of, um, he never stopped experimenting. But what was interesting for me, and this is how I sort of um, describe him in my book, uh, is that as a child, he was experimenting. So right from the earliest time, he was experimenting. He, he, he had a, a real appetite for learning. He would go to the library and read every book uh, in the order that they were in on the shelf. So quite a kind of rigid approach to learning. Um, he was always conducting experiments in chemistry in the basement of his house. He became obsessed with Morse code, which is a system of patterns. Um, and his, his mother took him out of school 
because he really didn't fit into mainstream education. And by the time we see him as a young adult, um, his, you know, he called his kids Dot and Dash because of his love of Morse code. And his wife moved his mattress into his workshop so he, he could continue experimenting all day and all night. You know, this doesn't mean that he was autistic. It just means he was very, very focused on, on patterns and experiments. So these are kind of anecdotes. But to really kind of test the question, is, is there a link between autism and invention? You need these uh, big population studies, which I described. Larry, can I jump in with a question? This is Dan Willingham. Yeah, uh, Simon, I was thinking about your description of the if and then uh, as a description of sort of the evolution of creativity. And it sounded like mm. it maybe had something in common with another uh, cognitive process that uh, I've heard as, as being important in the evolution of creativity, which is the ability to simulate um, uh, simulate another world, if you like, sort of look at the world as it is and then uh, imagine the world as it isn't, which some uh, uh, comparative psychologists have suggested that may be uniquely human. I wonder if you could comment yeah. on that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if we, if we look at those three little words, if and then, you know, if is sometimes uh, seen as the input to any system, that's the way engineers would see it. But if it's also a hypothetical, you know, you know, what if the world was different? You know, so, so if allows you to imagine possibilities beyond what currently exists. The and is then usually um, an operation that you perform on the input. So it's often a causal operation. You know, if I take the number three and I cube it, then... I get the number 27. So the then is usually the output from the system. But you're right that this kind of logic uh, does allow for creativity. It does allow for imagining things that don't yet exist. And that, you know, the inventions are sometimes just playing with patterns, but sometimes, you know, playing with imaginary worlds, imaginary patterns. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I mean, one of the the key elements of the book is that something radical happened 70,000 to 100,000 years ago, and you think this was the key yeah. variable that changed. Um, but, you know, a lot of things change, too. I mean, how do, why, do we, why do you have such confidence that this was probably it versus something else? Yeah. You know, for example, so, like if you look so at a normal I... like, history book, um, they talk about, like, movement like, in, to an agricultural experience or something like that. Yeah, well... Agriculture came much later, uh, so the agricultural revolution was more like 12,000 years ago. But um, so my, my argument is that what you know, the big change in the human brain 70,000 years ago, 70 to 100, if you look at the archaeology, uh, was the the evolution of two new circuits. One is the systemizing mechanism. We've been talking about that. And you can see that in the artifacts. I mentioned the bow and arrow, the music, you know, the first musical instrument, the first jewelry, um, cave paintings, sculptures. We just see an incredible blossoming of invention. And the systemizing mechanism can explain how we were making these things. Uh, but I, the, a second circuit that I argue evolved is the empathy circuit. Because when we look at something like 
the first musical instrument or the first jewelry, it gives us an indication that our ancestors back then could not only make things in a new way, but they could imagine how other people would see them. They were able to think about other people's thoughts and feelings. You know, when you wear jewelry, it's because you can imagine that other people might find you attractive or might find you of high status. Or if you make jewelry and give it as a gift, it may be because you want to make another person happy. So this is evidence that 70 to 100,000 years ago, our ancestors could also empathize. And of course, empathy opened up a whole new complexity to social interaction, including deception uh, and new, new ways of communication, um, particularly referential communication. So it wasn't just one thing that happened. You're absolutely right. I think there's at least two big changes that happened. Uh, and when we talk about the agricultural revolution, I think you can see the systemizing mechanism at play there. You know, if I take a seed and I plant it in the soil, then I get a plant. So it's the if and then logic that enabled the agricultural revolution, which is itself an invention. I guess what I, I, I didn't pick up from your book was that it was the combination of both empathy and systematizing. In, in some ways, I, I thought they were sort of uh, yin and yang. They were like a, it, it was like a seesaw. One went up, the other went down. Because you yeah, can exactly. the hyper-systematizer, the autistic person, is, uh, is, has very low empathy, doesn't seem to understand other people. Yeah. And those that were very high in empathy seem to be very low in systematizing. Um, do we find yeah. many people who are hyper-systematizers and hyper-empathetic? Or for the same, do we see people who have extremely low empathy and very low systematizing? And is mm -hmm. there an, how strong is that negative correlation? Yeah, so, so in, our, in our big population study, we had half a million people. We were able to kind of divide everybody into five different brand types based on whether they lean more towards systemizing or lean more towards empathy. Uh, going back to the earlier point about gender, more women um, lean more towards the empathy end and more men lean more towards systemizing. And as you mentioned, autistic people are hyper-systemizers, but they, they struggle with aspects of empathy, what's called cognitive empathy or imagining someone else's thoughts and feelings. Uh, and there is a, a, a trade-off. So the higher you score on one, on, on systemizing, for example, the lower you score on the other. So it's a small but statistically significant negative correlation between the two. They're not, they're not independent. And that's made us look for you know, um, biological factors that they may share. And in our own research, we've been looking at hormones, particularly testosterone prenatally, which uh, changes brain development. Hmm. Um, where, where do you where do you see um, this research taking us? Um, what what's next from it? What what, what are we going to what are we going to learn from it? Well, one of the reasons I wrote the book is that autism has uh, for the longest time we've we've just focused on the challenges that autistic people have particularly around social relationships and communication. 
And we've missed, I think, many of the strengths that autistic people have, particularly around pattern recognition, attention to detail, uh, logic, um, and thinking differently. And at the end of the book, it's kind of like a call to action because I, I, I look at how is our society treating autistic people, and it turns out that the majority of autistic adults are unemployed and have very poor mental health, uh, probably because they haven't received the right support. And, you know, there's a kind of paradox. On the one hand, the book celebrates the fact that the genes for autism have driven human progress. On the other hand, we, we're leaving autistic people outside of society, um, which is, in a way, it's a kind of, um, you know, they're not, they're not, they don't have full human rights, the right to employment, the right to education, the right to participation in, in society. So the book is really kind of asking us to, to rethink how we see autistic people. Sure, they have disabilities, but they also have strengths. Some of these strengths are even talents, and that we need to sort of rethink our schools and our workplaces to make sure that they're autism friendly, so that you know we can, you know, so, so that they can participate fully. And that might mean a whole change in the way we think. Uh, and much of this is encompassed by the concept of neurodiversity. You know, autism is just one kind of neurodiversity. And neurodiversity simply means that we don't all have the same kind of brain. You know, we're very familiar with other kinds of diversity, like gender diversity or ethnic diversity. But we really need to kind of get to, you know, you know uh, embrace neurodiversity uh, because otherwise we could be discriminating against a whole group of people. You know, in, in the book, you start the book with a discussion of a, a particular uh, autistic child who during the, I got maybe during school recess would be out playing with leaves and separating them into different uh, categories. Yeah. And, um, he's bullied by other students who don't understand him or I guess they view his actions as weird and outside the norm. Um, and that child struggles for the rest of his life in terms of employment, but is you know, very clever as it relates to uh, his own education. Going back to your, your main point, which relates to uh, how we educate and, and utilize autistic people, um, I remember in growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, um, we would separate autistic child children and put them in a special program where they never seem to come out of it and rejoin um, the rest of the the, the, I'll call it general population. Yeah, yeah. Um, why do you think that, um, do you think that they should rejoin the general population or should we just restructure the way that we deal with autistic children? And it sounds also, what I learned from your book, was that there's enormous variance among the autistic community between those who are yeah, helpless yeah. to those that who are like Thomas Edison and can change the world. There's a huge variance in that population. And by putting them all together, yeah, is yeah. that a mistake? Yeah, so I think that, you know, where possible, um, you know, we should be making our institutions and our workplaces accommodate autistic people. So rather than, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to create like um, a separate society for autistic people. You know, they're, they're, they're part of our society and they should be integrated within it. 
And it's our responsibility, it's like a moral responsibility to make sure that nobody is left out. Of course, it is true that some autistic people have additional needs, like learning difficulties, and they may need a different environment, much smaller classes, uh, maybe even kind of learning in a one-to-one -one situation. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, the principle still holds that they should be included. You know, the word inclusion is really important. And are you aware of any programs that are being done anywhere in the world that have been successful in this regard? I think um, in the workplace, we're seeing more and more examples. I'll just give you one example, which is the Israeli army have uh, a special unit which only employs autistic soldiers. Um, so despite their social difficulties, they're asked to look at aerial photographs and just look at the photographs for any suspicious activity. And so essentially they're using their, their good pattern recognition skills to detect potential terrorist activity. So, you know, Israel's a country where every individual is also a soldier, and autistic people are being given the opportunity to participate fully. That's just one example, obviously, that's a military example, but you can imagine in any workplace, there should be scope to employ autistic people to use their strengths and, you know, so that they can feel valued and that they can earn a salary uh, and, you know, feel that they belong. You also mentioned that um, the rate of autism has been rising, and you suspect that the reason may be is that um, marriages are much more common these days between uh, STEM men and STEM women. Um, do you think mm. that is your best guess for why we've seen an increase in autism, and to what extent do you think it reflects um, better understanding of it and better um, figuring out who has autism? Yeah, no, I think that probably the largest reason why autism has been increasing in prevalence is just uh, better awareness, better, rec better recognition, and more services. So, you know, when I started in this field, which is now almost 40 years ago, we thought that autism was very rare. Uh, the textbooks all said it was 4 in 10,000 children. And I mentioned earlier that now we recognize autism is very common, about 1 or 2%. So, you know, that's like, um, you know, you'll find autistic kids in every high school, um, in every primary school. Uh, but it may be that, you know, over and above just better awareness, better recognition, um, there might be um, clusters of autism uh, that reflect genetic combinations from the parents. And I mentioned Eindhoven was one such cluster. Um, Silicon Valley in California may have other clusters. It's, it's yet to, to be studied systematically. But where you find people who are good at systemizing, those genes overlap with the genes for autism. That's the kind of new discovery. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, I think with that we're going to move on to our second speaker, uh, Daniel Rowingham. He's a cognitive psychologist at the University of Virginia. Uh, he's going to talk about reading comprehension, storytelling, 
and why we should reopen our schools in person. Yeah, I have to say at the outset, six minutes is uh, horrifyingly short for an academic. And Larry, on top of that, you gave me three topics, but we're going to move briskly. We'll, uh, we'll see how we do with this. So let, let me start with reading comprehension. Uh, a key feature of written com communication that I want to uh, emphasize is that when people write, they omit information, including information the reader needs to understand the intended message. So I'll give a simple example. You read, Trisha spilled her coffee. Dan jumped up to get a rag. Now the writer intended for you to understand more than just Trisha spilling her coffee and Dan getting the rag. You are supposed to understand a causal connection between those sentences. Dan jumped up to get the rag because Trisha spilled her coffee. But notice the writer omitted information that the reader actually needs to make that connection. You need to know that spilled coffee makes a mess. You need to know that people don't like messes. You need to know that a rag can clean a mess. So why would a writer omit information that the reader needs to comprehend the passage? The writer's gambling that the reader already knows that spilled coffee makes a mess, that a rag can clean a mess, and so on. Because if the writer spelled all that out, the passage is going to be really tedious. Uh, the writer's telling you a bunch of stuff you already know. So any writer must always guess as to what their audience knows and doesn't know. So what happens if you pick something up to read it and the writer assumes that you knew a bunch of stuff that you actually don't know? It's pretty predictable. You're going to be confused. Your brain is terrific at finding information from memory that fills the gaps that writers leave. So when I first read Trisha Spolter Coffee, Dan jumped up to get a rag, it didn't, I'm sure, feel to you like you needed to do some sort of process of inference. You just immediately uh, understood the connection between those sentences, and that's because your mind sort of put forward from memory the bridging information that allowed you to make that inference. But, of course, the information has to be in memory for your mind to be able to pluck it out. So you can predict from this that it's going to be much easier for me to understand passages on topics that I know a lot about compared to topics I don't know much about. And studies bear that out. If you take a child who scores poorly on a standard reading test, give her a passage on a topic she knows really well, baseball, dinosaurs, whatever, she's suddenly going to look like a really good reader on that particular passage. Now, that's not the way we're used to thinking about reading tests. We're used to thinking of them as sort of this magic number that tells you how good a reader is on any passage. We don't say, this is how good a reader you were for the passages on the reading test. But we've just seen that the particular passage and how much you know about that topic, that really matters. So that implies that the people who do well on reading tests are people who have very broad knowledge. That way, whatever topic the passages on the reading test happen to be about, you know at least a little something about that topic. And that turns out to be true. People who do well on reading tests are people who have very broad knowledge, and that's true even controlling for IQ. Now those findings invite the question, how do you get a lot of knowledge? Schooling's important, obviously, but it's not the only contributor. Much of what we know is learned incidentally, to use the word psychologists use, which just means you didn't try to learn it. 
This is why most people listening now know that Kanye West is married, and they know that his wife filed for divorce, even though I'm sure very few people on this call tried to learn that fact. They just learned it incidentally. And this is where we get to storytelling. Stories are especially well-remembered. That's partly because they have causality embedded in them, and that ends up leaving a really good cue for memory. A causes B, so later when you think of A, that's a very good prompt to remember B. There's a connection there. It's also hypothesized that humans, being social animals, evolved to gossip because gossip increases group cohesion by making group members adhere to group rules. So stories have the same format, generally, as social gossip, and it's a pretty powerful effect. Uh, you might remember the basic outline of a movie that you saw one time. You might remember that for years, even a movie that you didn't care for all that much. Now, this phenomenon is most obvious and powerful in stories, but what I really wanted to emphasize is the incidental nature of memory, that wanting to remember is not at all essential to learning. What's essential is being exposed to new things to learn and then actually thinking about them. And that brings me to missed schooling. So the two main points I've made so far, let me remind you. First, I've said knowledge is important to reading comprehension. Second, I've said that much of the knowledge that we acquire is acquired incidentally. So what that means is if you live in an environment that's very rich, full of things to learn, you're going to learn more kind of obvious. Uh, there's an impression, though, especially among Americans, that intelligence is mostly a matter of genetics. But in fact, over the last 20 years, there's been more and more evidence accumulating about the importance of the environment to intelligence and to success in school rather than to genetic factors alone. Now, there's, of course, a significant difference in the environments of rich kids and poor kids. Schooling is an equalizer of environments. Obviously, the school environment of a wealthy child and a poor child is not equivalent, but their environments are closer to equivalent when schools are open than when they're closed. When we think about differences in learning loss between rich kids and poor kids, we think about differences in access to technology, quieter places to you know, experience distance learning, greater likelihood there's a parent there who can take out time to help. All of that stuff matters. But when schools are closed or in hybrid mode, that means more time in the home environment, and home environments are more unequal than the unequal school environments. So I'll leave it there and love to talk further. Great. Um, I wanted to go back to your first comment about uh, Trisha spilling the coffee and Dan jumping up to get the rag. Mm -hmm. um, we had a, a book club once with Ann Curzan, who is a professor at the University of Michigan, and she focuses on linguistics and oral language. And what she said in the discussion was that there's a big difference between the way we speak and what we write and what we read to read. And that one of the distinctions is that the speaker can watch the, um, the listener, and when he, he or she gets confused, uh, you can add more information in so that they don't, you, know, you don't lose your audience. Um, but in the written form, the author is not on the premises and isn't able to ascertain that and therefore has to provide much more information so that you don't lose that person uh, and have that problem. But you seem to be saying something a little bit differently, that um, even though there, you can't observe them, you can make some assumptions about uh, what should 
the listener do, and then to give other sorts of cues. So I guess my question is, how do you think about the difference between oral and written communication as it relates to causality and uh, comprehension? So, yeah, there are a few points here. First, uh, I absolutely agree that this is a big difference between listening and reading. When you're listening, yeah, you can stop the speaker and say, you know, you need to slow down. I, I, I mean, everybody's got a friend like this, right, who just talks over your head. I have one friend in particular, it's the wife of a friend of mine who, she's a molecular, um, she's a chemist, and she does something to do with like how molecules behave at the surface of liquids. And when I say, hey, Jenny, how's this going? She starts talking to me like I'm a chemist who does molecules at the surface of liquids, right? So you can, you can stop and say like, you need to explain this like I'm five. Um, it's much harder in the other direction uh, when people are giving you much more information than you need because it's sort of seen as socially inappropriate to say, look, could you pick up the pace? Like you're telling, I'm, I understand most of what you're explaining to me. Uh, but those two examples show the, those are basically examples of when people misjudge what their audience knows. And it highlights the extent to which we're constantly doing this. It, it's striking to us when someone misjudges, but we're doing it all the time. This is why you talk differently to a five-year-old and uh, compared to a peer. Um, now, in terms of writing, you absolutely do the same thing when you're writing. This is, you, you should, if you're a, a good writer, you should have an audience in mind, and you should be guessing what it is your audience knows, what you need to explain, um, and what you don't need to explain. And certainly as someone who writes for academic audiences and writes for general audiences, I'm highly conscious of, uh, uh, of, of that sort of calculation when I'm, when I'm writing. In, in a similar sort of combination, um, we now have this technology where we have audio books available as well as books. Um, and I'm wondering if you listen to a book versus read a book, how that distinguishes what kind of comprehension the listener slash reader has. Um, I might add that when books are very complicated for me individually, what I do is I sometimes listen to the book and then read along with it, sort of like I used to do with my kids, except wow. now I'm doing it for myself. Uh, I'll give you an example. I was reading, um, I, I really struggled with Heart of Darkness by uh, Conrad. I thought it was a really challenging book, but when I listened to it and read along, it became unbelievably easily comprehensible. Um, just thinking about audiobooks versus real books and how to think about that uh, cognition. You're like a book publisher's dream. You like buy two copies of books. I mean, that, this is just wonderful. Um, I think you'll want to do that with all of my books, by the way, Larry. They're very challenging. Yeah, well, you'll, you'll really benefit from having a couple. Of, you'll want copies for your car as well. Um, so, the, the, so the first thing to say is that there is a lot of overlap in the mental machinery uh, with oral language comprehension and written language comprehension. Um, there, you, the brain doesn't sort of duplicate, uh, create a, an extra copy of language comprehension. It just sort of uses one. Um, and what, what's really happening is writing being a relatively recent technology, something like 5,000 years old. Um, and uh, it's only quite recently that a significant number of people have been reading and writing. Uh, so there hasn't been time, uh, if there were a need for evolution, to sort of leave us with extra machinery. So we're, we're co-opting uh, oral language uh, comprehension processes to serve for reading comprehension. 
Now, that said, there are differences. Um, if you just look at the actual signal, there are significant differences between the way people speak and the way people write. First, I mean, if you just look at a text of, uh, of written uh, conversation, people frequently stop uh, talking, people interrupt one another, and so on. It's, it's, uh, it's much more chaotic. But in terms of the process of, uh, of reading versus listening, one of the um, uh, to an audio book, um, one of the advantages that you have with an audio book is that you get prosody, you get the the melody of speech, all of which is or most of which is invisible on a page. So the different just to give an example of prosody, think of anyone saying something sarcastically. The way that you know they're being sarcastic rather than sincere is uh, changes in. Uh, the pacing and the emphasis on uh, certain words and the pitch of certain words. So that's present when you're listening to an audio book and not when you're reading. Um, so that seems like audio books are a little bit easier, but then there are other ways in which uh, uh, print is easier. For example, doing uh, backtracking. Uh, when you're reading, you actually make a fair amount of eye movements that move backwards. You're, of course, unaware of this, but especially if a uh, sentence has somewhat complicated syntax, you're definitely going to make an eye movement back. You're sort of checking back to uh, uh, sort of retrace your steps and, and get another pass. Uh, it can be as high as 10% of eye movements when you're reading print are actually uh, saccades that are moving backwards. Moving backwards and sort of getting a chance to go over something again uh, is you can it can be done when you're listening, but it's uh, it's quite difficult to do. It's a nuisance. Most people don't do it. So in terms of one or the other being more difficult or easy, I would say the summary is they have a lot more com in common than they do difference. And I think there's a, a little nudge towards easiness or difficulty that favors one or the other when you start looking at the uh, ornaments on the basic architecture. I, I want to bring Simon into the discussion for a second. Um, and sure. sure. Yeah. Hi, Larry. You're, you're, I'm going to bring up one topic, and Simon, you can go crazy on something else if you want. Um, I wanted to go to sure. this idea about genetics versus environment. Um, and Simon, yeah. I guess my yeah. first question for you would be, do you, see, do you think environment can trigger the autism, or do you think that is a purely a genetic phenomenon? Um, or um, yeah. So, so um, because I think that the way you, you to look at the problem is, is almost opposite. Um, Simon, you seem to come with this like that there's there's not a blank slate uh, at birth, but you're kind of you're, the genetics kind of define how it's going to play. Uh, well, certainly in the case of autism, there's a, a strong genetic element, but it's not a hundred percent. So you can have identical twins where one is autistic and one isn't. So that, so that, you know, given that they share 100% of their genes, the existence of these twins that are dissimilar shows that autism isn't purely genetic. But it's, it, you know, but you can calculate heritability by doing these twin studies. And the heritability of autism is very high. It, you know, some people estimate it to be maybe 70 or 80%. But that still means that there are environmental or non-genetic factors uh, at work. And we're, we're looking at some of these in our research. And it could include, for example, uh, these prenatal hormones 
that shape brain development. I was talking about those earlier, like testosterone and estrogen. Um, you know, these are hormonal effects interacting with genetic predisposition. Just expanding a second on those identical twins, um, do you think also that, you know, the birthing process itself is pretty traumatic. Do you think there's something related to maybe um, a botched birth in some way that may relate to those differences, or, or is that just too small? That's part of the problem. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. You know, that when we look at the, the non-genetic factors, the environmental factors, you know, complicated birth and prematurity, you know, both of those are, um, you know, they increase the likelihood of autism. So, uh, you know, it's complex in terms of its uh, etiology, its causes. And then again, you know, you know you're, sorry, I was just going to sort of say that, you know, postnatally, of course, uh, it's, you know, early, early experience is also likely to influence the child's outcome. So we know that a lot of programs for autistic kids, early intervention programs, you know, they succeed by giving the child a lot of social experience. And, um, you know, so it's not all, it's not all in the genes. Um, and, you know, early experience can influence outcome. Did you want to ask uh, a question directly, Simon? I did, yeah. I, was, I mean, I was really interested, Dan, in, in, in um, your six minutes. And in particular, I was interested in um, the role of what some psychologists call theory of mind, and its link to reading. So theory of mind is, you know, this ability to imagine other people's thoughts and intentions. And what it sounded like is that the writer has to always be making assumptions about, you know, what the reader needs to know. So the, the writer is always thinking about the reader's uh, knowledge and beliefs, but equally when the reader has to try and guess the intentions of the writer. So it seems like what we're calling theory of mind, or sometimes it's called empathy, is very much tied in with, with reading. Is that right? That is it the case that people who have better theory of mind also are better readers? So yeah, there, there's been a lot of interest in that over the last decade or two, and it was triggered by a lot of excitement that um, people who read prose fiction, uh, an, an initial finding that people who regularly read prose fiction uh, showed uh, more robust theory of mind or more accurate theory of mind, if you like, uh, than people who did not. And there's obviously a problem of causality, and so they um, yeah. uh, they actually had people, I guess, against their will in some cases, uh, read some works of fiction, and they found um, both maybe some movement on standard measures of theory of mind, but more impressively in brain imaging uh, that there, were, uh, there was activation in parts of the brain hypothesized to support theory of mind. Those initial findings have not held up all that well. Um, I think okay. it. I think it. I think it makes perfect sense. But when you talk about reading, there's also, re, you know, mostly what you would be talking about uh, in the case of the reader is is fiction, where there's um, sort of, yeah. right, as opposed to a diagram of an electrical grid or something like that that you're trying to understand. Right. 
Um, and so there are different levels of comprehension. It's, it's a pretty ticklish thing to take a work uh, you know, by Dickens and not just measure uh, do you understand what happened in the plot, but measure something that would really correspond to what we mean by empathy. Now, the other yeah. side of your comment I find really interesting, uh, and I've not seen it addressed, which is that uh, effective writers would have um, more robust theory of mind than those who are ineffective. I think it's a, it's a wonderful project. I've not seen anyone undertake it. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you were saying in your own work, if you're writing for the general public, you know, you make different assumptions about what they, they need to know compared to if you're writing a technical article for your colleagues in a journal. So mm -hmm. you're always adapting, you know, uh, the, the message. You're adapting the message based on your assumptions about the audience, which suggests you do have, uh, you know, a very advanced theory of mind. And, and again, this is something that everyone is doing all the time. It's not just writers. Everyone's doing this when they speak as well. And so that would be another Absolutely. way that you could examine it, another yeah. arena to look at it. Yeah. Let so my other quick question. Go ahead. Larry, can I just ask Dan one more question, which is about dyslexia. How does that fit in? Because, you know, that's a, a group of kids who struggle with reading right from the outset. Right. What's going on there? So most of what, so dyslexia is sort of complicated. It's not, um, it, it, it's, it's a little bit of a basket category, meaning that it's a child who seems to have a lot of difficulty um, learning how to read, but you can uh, eliminate uh, a number of problems that we would not say are specifically reading. They don't have vision problems. They don't have, you know, a general problem with all types of language and so on. Um, the, uh, although it is a bit of a basket category, most of the problems seem to be related to hearing individual speech sounds. So learning to decode text, going from words on the page to words in the mind, is a process of initially of decoding sound. And people who are uh, congenitally deaf have enormous difficulty learning how to read. Most of them never learn how to read very effectively. So sound is enormously important in learning the, uh, that decoding process. And so the, uh, the, the other features of reading that you might think go wrong, for example, inability to distinguish letters, and for a long time people thought uh, dyslexics see letters backwards. That's not true. Uh, another process that could go wrong is you can hear individual speech sounds, you can see the right letters, but you can't learn the mapping between them. Even though English has a very difficult mapping, that's very seldom the problem. It's mostly being able to um, become aware of the difference between the first sound in big and the first sound in pig. So everybody can hear that, and they can use language normally. So again, assuming that the, this is a typically developing child in other ways, uh, when they get to school, they can hear the difference between big and pig. But in order to learn how to read, to know what the letter that looks like a B, what that goes with, you need to be able to consciously consider what makes big and pig different. That is something that lots of kids have lots of trouble with, and the kids who have very persistent uh, difficulty with it. That's the main reason uh, you get trouble in learning how to read. My last question for you, Dan. 
relates to um, the work of Don Hirsch. We had E.D. Hirsch uh, on our call a few weeks ago, and he spoke about the needs for having a common culture. He didn't really care what it was as long as we had a common one, and therefore we could all uh, ref make references to certain things. And if we had that common culture, we could then have a better, much higher reading comprehension. You mentioned in your talk that um, context is critical to learning. Um, how do you think about Don Hirsch's work in the context of how you think about reading? I think in terms of reading, he's absolutely right. I mean, if you think about, and, and it goes beyond just reading, it really gets to the practicalities of schooling as well. Uh, but first, let me just uh, uh, complete the thought on reading. Yeah, I mean, if, if uh, I sort of have these common touch points uh, for anybody who has graduated high school, say, in the United States, uh, it makes it much easier for me to communicate because there are certain ideas that I can confidently allude to. Again, we were talking before about the difficulty of anticipating your audience. This greatly simplifies things. In terms of the practicality of schooling, having a consistent curriculum, either you know, even if you just did it within a state, but if you did it across all states, which would never happen in this country, but if you did, I mean, the, the big thing that it helps is if I'm a teacher and I'm confronted with 25 eighth graders and the um, ability, their, their ability to comprehend a text depends on what they already know, well, if you've got a consistent curriculum, I as a teacher, I know what they know. So it's much easier for me to select a text that is going to be at sort of just the right difficulty for them where they can mostly comprehend it, but it stretches them just a little bit. Um, the complication comes, of course, when you start trying to decide what this, uh, this uh, common curriculum is going to be, um, and people get you know, very, uh, very anxious uh, but the truth is, what, what I'm, I'm always emphasizing to people is, if, uh, I understand that picking a curriculum makes you nervous, but not picking a curriculum is a choice, too. Um, you're, it's not like you're avoiding the problem of deciding what kids are going to learn. Instead, you're just uh, running away from the problem and allowing it to be haphazard. Dan, thank you so much. We're now going to go on to our third speaker, Noah Rothman, who's associate editor at Commentary Magazine. He'll be discussing his new book, Unjust. Noah? Thank you so Hi, thank you so much. Um, everybody was so good at maintaining the, the constraints of the six-minute limit, so I can only aspire to their model. I will do my best. Um, social justice, as we understand it in practice today, does not resemble what it was originally designed to be, indeed what people talk about, how people describe it in a religious context and in a socio-political context now. It once was an idea that uh, helped people think about fairness and the creation of a just society. Uh, today, social justice in practice has become uh, identity politics as an organizing ethos uh, for a new model, a new vision of how societies should organize themselves. So originally, again, this is a very religious concept. It has its, its origins are religious. It dates back to the, um, the mid-19th century in the Catholic Church uh, in which uh, Jesuit thinkers primarily uh, were seeking to design a model to compete with the more secular vision that was advanced and adopted by Enlightenment-era thinkers, culminating in the Rerum Novarum, which was an uh, ecclesiastical delivered by Pope Leo XIII, 
which was designed to combat uh, sort of both that as well as Marxist impulses to mollify the demands of a society that wanted a more activist government and more protections from the public sector. Uh, and while that address contained some uh, advocacy for private property rights, it was also a much more collectivist vision of society. Fast forward a few decades and the, uh, the philosopher John Rawls put a little bit more meat on these bones and advanced this concept as less of a religious idea and more of a secular theory of social organization. The Rawlsian idea of social justice uh, advocates the redistribution, not just of economic, but social goods, and to do so through a series of mechanisms that he envisioned that would be essentially perfect institutions designed to, uh, to have a perfect distribution of those goods. And the only way he could figure out how to do that was to create this uh, con conceit which he called the veil of ignorance, so that these enlightened institutions and these enlightened distributors would be operating behind a, uh, a set of blinders so that they wouldn't know who the objects of their distribution would be. In that sense, in that way, there could only, that's the only way they could have a fair and just distribution of these goods. And in the hands of modern social justice advocates, you see sort of a combination of some of the best aspects in their view of Rerum Novarum idea of social justice and also Rawlsian social justice, but they ditch the veil of ignorance. The veil of ignorance becomes a, um, a moral hazard in a way, because how can you have a just distribution of goods without understanding who the objects of your distribution will be? And also, perhaps more importantly, if you've listened to many advocates discuss this sort of thing, uh, who they're taking this stuff away from, who has ill-begotten goods that they inherited as a series of accidents of birth and who need to be stripped of those uh, the products of luck essentially um, in in the name of fairness in the name of social justice and we have a we have now the outlines of a theory of justice which looks on people not as individuals it's not the sort of justice that we see meted out in a courtroom exactly it's um, more a kind of justice that you see meted out in societies that are riven by conflict, social conflict and civil conflict. And in the, the literature on this sort of thing, there is a place for tiered systems of justice that have a much more collectivist ideal of who should be the beneficiaries of uh, the system and who should be the targets of retribution in order to achieve a sort of social compact or restore a social compact that was destroyed by conflict. And advocates of modern social justice perceive the United States in that way. They perceive it as a country that is riven by social conflict, bordering on warfare. Um, and in that way, they justify this idea of having a tiered system of justice that meets out collective retribution. And this isn't just a theory. It has been put into practice. And in the practice, we can see it in the conduct of the adjudication of um, sexual assault claims on campuses, for example. In 2011, the Obama administration, the Education Department under Barack Obama, distributed a letter, the, a dear colleague letter, to institutions that proscribed certain ways, or prescribed rather certain ways, to adjudicate these claims on campus and keep them out of a courtroom. Um, otherwise, and if they didn't adhere to these uh, policies, they risk losing uh, federal funding. And what the theory was, was that in the hands of the activist, activists claim that our system of justice that is, as it exists in the courtroom today are unfair and unjust to the accused. Um, constitutional uh, prescriptions, for example, on 
the, uh, the ability of an individual to confront their own accuser, um, meeting out of uh, evidence that is uh, not commensurate with a, with a civil court, for example, just a preponderance of evidence, but beyond a shadow of a doubt, that evidentiary threshold is simply too much. Uh, an individual cannot be, uh, cannot be questioned in a courtroom, for example, because it's too traumatic. Um, they, can't, you know, they can't have access to certain uh, provisions like counsel because that is, again, you know, it tips the scales too much in the direction of the, uh, of the accuser and not of the accused. Um, so what we saw in that process was a whole redefinition of justice, which is much more familiar in the grand scale of human organization. Um, but it was unjust in the terms that we define the meeting out of justice in, in the United States. It resulted in people having their uh, Sixth Amendment rights abridged, their Fourth Amendment rights abridged. A lot of this stuff was adjudicated in actual courtrooms after the fact in civil trials, civil suits against these colleges and universities. And millions of dollars have been paid out in settlements. Um, and so that's the most serious aspects of how social justice manifests itself today in the activists, uh, in, the, in the hands of activists. There are much more silly, uh, in fact, you're probably much more familiar with the silly aspects of how this sort of thing manifests itself. Um, for example, just as a brief example, the story of Fearless Girl, which was a, uh, an attempt by a, a statue erected in downtown Manhattan by a firm called uh, State Street Global Investors, which was designed, uh, according to its, uh, the people behind it, to advance an idea of gender equality in the financial services sector. And this firm said it was establishing the statue as, you know, to, to dedicate to this cause, and it was creating a gender diversity index to, you know, gauge every other firm in its sector as to how many women they employed and whether they were adhering to these values of equality and justice across the spectrum. Uh, and this attracted a ton of press attention and a ton of attention from people in the political sector, where you had even um, people who were you could say pretty hostile towards the ethos on Wall Street, like Senator Elizabeth Warren making a pilgrimage down to uh, downtown Manhattan to be photographed alongside this uh, this you know, dedication to all the all the proper values and norms. Right. Well, it didn't take long before we realized that this you know some investigation discovered that this was not just an advertisement for a uh, a financial services fund that everybody on the on the social justice left, for example, was endorsing. But it was an effort to manipulate public opinion in advance of a Department of Labor allegation that the firm had been systematically discriminating against its female employees and its minority employees, and then ended up settling that, those allegations uh, for, uh, to a rather hefty sum. So you saw these people uh, gen genuinely endorse what was a really manipulative effort to get itself out, this firm, get itself out from under the scrutiny of uh, investigators. And it had some, some successes. You still haven't seen a lot of people reconcile with the fact that they endorsed this advertisement merely because it, it, it uh, stimulated all their, and confirmed all their priors and stimulated their biases. Um, in a slightly more uh, troubling way, um, you had organizations like the Women's March, which tore itself apart. The Women's March was a very organic phenomenon that arose spontaneously after the election of Donald Trump, where millions of women poured out into the streets, and the organization that formed up around this um, became quite political and quite influential very quickly. The Democratic Party, the Democratic National Committee endorsed this organization. A lot of its members were advising 
uh, the Committee on Political Strategy in early 2017. And its members adhered to a philosophy of intersectionality, which is a very helpful thought experiment. Intersectionality um, prescribes that you um, see the world in terms of the sort of discrimination that is doled out in degrees to varying ethnicities, to varying genders, to varying sexual identities, because prejudice is not something that exists on a finite, or, or rather, on a, on a, uh, as a determined, um, a determined scale, it, it, it's doled out in degrees that exists on a scale. So somebody who's, for example, uh, black and male will experience slightly less prejudice over the course of their lives than someone who's black and female, because someone who is female experiences whole different varieties of prejudice, and those prejudices compound and intersect. That's intersectionality. Intersectionality also compels you to think in stereotypes as a form of enlightenment. You have to in order to adhere to this philosophy. And stereotypes are very chauvinistic. They're jingoistic. They're predicated on our own assumptions about how society works. And one of the assumptions that these intersectional advocates in the Women's March adhered to was the idea that American Jews are not only not a minority, but are essentially part of the uh, white ruling class um, because they are successful in this society as a result of their capacity to integrate. Um, and generally, the stereotype goes, they are therefore uh, the inheritors of privilege and the advocates of privilege unconsciously, whether they know it or not. So the Jewish women in this group, who were very prominent organizers initially, were um, hounded out of the organization by its more intersectional advocates. Didn't matter what they believed. Didn't matter that they were all on the same page. Didn't matter that they were very effective advocates for their political beliefs and for this organization. And they were dismissed summarily. And the, the organization, as a result, lost a lot of its political power because it adhered to these ideas that forced these people on prejudicial assumptions about what their backgrounds led them to believe, forced them out of this organization. Um, so that's, you know, I've, I've definitely expanded over my timeline, but that's just some of the ideas that, are, uh, that I go over in this book, identifying the ways in which social justice in the hands of its activist class has gone off the rails and become a prejudicial philosophy in ways that it was never intended to be. Let me start the questions related to your discussions about um, the Obama administration's uh, rules on how a trial should be done on campus related to sexual assault. We did a book club with Laura Kipnis uh, on this topic uh, a little over a year ago, um, and so I'm familiar with some of these issues. Um, you know, what I think is if you could comment first is the oddity that the uh, the progressives decided to um, limit Fourth and Sixth Amendment rights, as you described it. You know, it's funny because um, when I was a kid, uh, the Dirty Harry movies were very popular. And I remember when, um, in one particular example, Clint Eastwood is, is being read the Riot Act for uh, violating these Fourth Sixth Amendment, and he's completely horrified uh, that the bad guy is going to be let free. And it seemed like the right hmm. was extremely suspicious uh, fourth and Sixth Amendment right. How did it come to pass that um, that this logic switched on the political spectrum as to, to how to pr protect the accuser? That's a really fascinating question. I don't know if I know the whole answer to it. I'm presently writing another book about how um, the uh, what used to be the right's bailiwick, which was you know sort of moral preening and scolding you for the ways you lived your life behind closed doors that were anathema to the, the development of a wholesome society that used to be 
something that was very, uh, very much a conservative personality quirk. And it has become a, a progressive personality quirk. Um, and much of that transformation occurred as a result of, in, in that context, it recorded, occurred as a result of conservatives' losses and successes, though they don't tend to see them as much, uh, in the field of cultural combat in the culture wars. And the seeding of that ground created a vacuum that was very easily filled by a, a sort of personality type that was that that viewed the libertine excesses of the of the of the, the left in the 1960s and 1970s hostily. Even then, an intellectual current um, that has since become ascendant. Uh, I don't know if I can answer the transition for well, you because very much the, 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 on the same question. So sure, the Obama administration. Sure. Um, put this uh, new method on, in place, and the, uh, Betsy DeVos, I think she unwound it. Um, but I guess my expectations would be that the Biden administration would not override that and, and replace it back with um, the, the previous policy, because it does violate some of the core principles um, that progressives have as well, which is, is that protecting the rights of the accused. Do you think that this was just um, bad luck? that they went down that route, it was, it was mal not thought out properly, or do you think something else is going on and that um, we will, it, it will get reinvigorated? No, I think it's very much reinvigorated, and I think it's predicated on an ideological um, a set of priors that they're putting into practice. We're already seeing the mechanism that they use um, to, uh, to have this authority is called Title IX, and they're already re-implementing some of the aspects of the Dear Colleague letter that from 2011 that uh, changed the guidances around Title IX for adjudicating sexual assault claims on campus. And it is predicated on a belief that President Joe Biden said, said very succinctly during the campaign phase of the 2020 cycle when he described uh, English common law, the set of values that establishes, you know, uh, things like the hierarchy of courts and evidentiary standards for conviction, that sort of thing, which is not codified. Um, but has become part of our culture and was our culture before the, the founding of this country, that he called that a white man's culture, derogatively, uh, derogatorily rather, um, that he contended that as a result of the fact that this was predicated on values that were Anglo-Saxon, that it must be bad. And that's really it. That is well, the predicate it, on which it, they base this, this redefinition of law. Isn't that just so almost opposite that um, in a court of law, it seems that they want to help the accused and reduce conviction, but on college campuses, it's the reverse. What, why do you think that's going on? Is that just is that a function of intersectionality as well? Of who's showing yes, up in that because, Yes, I believe so, because individuals are not seen as individuals. Individual cases are not evaluated based on the merits of the charge against an individual or the, the, the accuser or the accused. It, they are evaluated in, on a collectivist basis, that the individual is seen as representative of a particular group, uh, in particular um, in the, the, advo the advocates of social justice on the left. And this is not a, a, a left-leaning phenomenon entirely. Part of my book is dedicated to the identity politics right, um, which would, uh, has a very similar, albeit a mirror image, sort of prescriptions for society. But they view these individuals as representatives of their particular tribes. And as the, in that dehumanized context, the tribe um, deserves, a, can be seen to be deserving of a particular sort of comeuppance 
Um, in this particular case, it's white and males, um, but it's, you know, can take in a variety of different forms. And because we, we dehumanize these individuals, make them part of their tribes, and their victims part of a tribe, um, then it's much easier to mete out a sort of collective justice, a historical justice that is due to them um, based solely on the accidents of their birth. Noah, thank you. Uh, we're going to go on to our next speaker, uh, Brandy Stellings. Uh, Brandy is going to talk about the Me Too movement. Go ahead, Brandy. Thanks, Larry. And that seems perfectly set up for a segue from our prior speaker. Um, you know, as I was thinking about talking today, I, for some reason, kept going back to a women's leadership conference that I went to several years ago. And this was a leadership summit that was devoted to advancing women lawyers. And our keynote speaker was a professor at the Stanford Business School, and he was talking to us about power, how to get it, how to wield it, how to have more influence. And the thing that really stuck with me was at the end of this talk, he advised us that if we wanted to be more effective, we should get rid of the word women in our organization's name, even though our mission was about advancing women, um, because he said when men hear the word women or gender, they stop listening. So I start with this story because I imagine that some people on this call, when you heard the topic was about Me Too, maybe stepped away to get a snack or tuned out a little, either because if you're a man, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing, you might see Me Too as a women's issue, or perhaps because you think you know, given what I do, and um, you know, uh, given the topic that was just discussed previously, you know, I am a women's rights advocate and an advocate and activist, so you might think you know what I'm going to say. Um, I'm going to use my remaining five minutes and 20 seconds <laughs> to talk about why Me Too matters as a business issue, not a women's issue, um, particularly for boards of directors. And then I'm going to share two or three things that I think um, for those of you who work at companies uh, can do to help mitigate the risk. And these recommendations may seem counterintuitive. So first of all, why should you care uh, if you're in the business world? Uh, plain and simple, money, um, sexual harassment and discrimination cases have been around for decades. But the new twist in the last few years is that investors are now seeking and winning relief through the use of corporate and securities laws. So in other words, these lawsuits are claiming harm to the corporation or a drop in the stock price due to executives and board directors' actions or more critically, lack thereof, in other words, turning a blind eye. So three recent examples that many people on the call have probably heard about. Fox News obviously settled a large shareholder derivative lawsuit following the disclosures of large settlements that they paid following uh, the disclosures of the bad acts of Roger Ailes and so forth. Um, Signet Jewelers, this is one that was resolved last summer. Uh, this is an interesting one because it was the first ever successful direct securities class action involving sexual harassment allegations. And basically, the case essentially alleged that Signet lied to its investors when its code of conduct, you know, something that almost every company has, when it stated, quote, that the company was committed to a workplace free of sexual harassment, when in fact the company, it was alleged, had a pervasive sexual harassment culture perpetuated by the CEO. This case settled on the eve of trial for $240 million. And then another one that was in the news a lot last year was Google. Google agreed to a $310 million settlement and a host of governance reforms. Um, again, another shareholder derivative lawsuit alleging that the directors, the company's directors, breached their duty to shareholders by, among other things, 
approving large payouts to senior executives who have been investigated for very serious sexual misconduct. So aside from legal liability on the back end, um, organizations should also care because investors care on the front end. Um, really, when I see these kinds of scandals, they're usually very often a failure of corporate culture. And some of the leading institutional investors in the world have made clear, like, like the Black Rocks of the world, have made clear for the last several years that corporate culture is one of their priority engagement topics with board directors. So let me just state now that I'm not here to, to talk about the merits of using securities in corporate law. You know, that is laws that are designed to protect shareholders as tools to address sexual harassment. Um, but because these suits are here to stay, I do want to share a couple steps that those who are within the corporate context can use to lessen your risk. And so the first one of those is um, to stop talking about zero tolerance. And I talk, I mentioned that because in the immediate aftermath of Me Too and other related corporate scandals, many companies, CEOs issued statements that they had a zero tolerance policy for sexual harassment. But what does zero tolerance really mean? I think it sets expectations at a very high bar and one that's almost impossible to reach. I know people saw Professor Paul Bloom had a really interesting article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago where he talked about zero tolerance as being something you reserve for enemies and strangers. And I don't think that really captures the complexities of the relationships that we have at work. And I would say that I found sort of paradoxically in my work advising companies um, that some uh, HR uh, officers are finding that they felt that there had been um, uh, uh, a downtick in reporting that uh, this idea of zero tolerance was discouraging reporting because people felt that the punishment did not fit the crime. In other words, they didn't want uh, their coworker to be fired, but they just wanted certain behavior to stop. Um, so in terms of an alternative, uh, what I advise companies to do is spell it out and be very specific and nuanced um, in terms of uh, what your expectations are around behavior and what the consequences are. So for example, some companies publish or distribute a very detailed corrective action matrix. I realize that sounds kind of scary, but basically it's a rubric um, that sets forth kind of a continuum of behavior from you know, an off-color joke to physical assault. And then describe the range of repercussions that are really um, calibrated according to what the uh, behavior is. These can range from just a verbal discussion all the way to termination. To termination. Um, another example, if you want to see one, it's a little bit different, but Uber created a taxonomy of sexual misconduct for classifying reports that they receive from riders, and that's on their website. Um, and my friend and colleague, Sylvia Ann Hewlett's book, she did a book that came out uh, a couple years ago called Me Too in the Corporate World. She talks about IBM's road to rehabilitation approach, and that is that for many of these things that come up in the workplace, training or coaching rather than termination is really the right response. So in other words, due process and proportionate response are really critical. I also think it's really important to recognize the realities of the workplace. People are gonna date. Um, so help provide some details by being specific about your policies. Um, Airbnb, for example, has a, you can ask someone out once role. So if they say no, you can't ask them out again, but it's very clear, simple rules. Um, the other area that I'll talk about uh, before I run out of any time is, um, is engaging men. And so I know you heard a couple weeks ago 
about men's increased reluctance to mentor women in the workplace. And I will say in my work, I've had countless conversations with uh, male executives who told me um, straight up that they've adopted the Mike Pence rule with respect to their interactions with women in the workplace. And so for those who feel that way, and I think there's quite a few, I'm going to share the advice um, that the authors of Harvard Business Reviews uh, recently published a book called Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace. Um, and they're both professors at the U.S. Naval Academy. And this is the advice that they shared with me when we were talking about this recently. So they describe um, working with men who follow the Pence rule as suffering from an abnormal fear of women. And then in the field of psychology, the effective treatment for any abnormal fear is exposure therapy. So in other words, if you're a man who's now afraid of interacting with women, instead of avoiding women, you should actively and frequently seek out more interaction and conversations with women at work. In other words, invite them to coffee or lunch, ask about their career interests or help on a project, basically normalize these kinds of interactions. Uh, if you want to see a specific example of that, people can find on J.P. Morgan's website a 36-minute pledge that they uh, have their male executives sign up for, which is basically spending 30 minutes having you know, coffee or, well, back in the days when we could have coffee <laughs> with a high-potential woman, um, five minutes each week talking to a female coworker about uh, recent success or accomplishment in the workplace, and then one minute talking about her accomplishments with others. And this is really, um, this topic is critically important because we know, and I think you talked about this on uh, the prior call that I mentioned, we know from other research that was published in Harvard Business Review that sexual harassment training will not end sexual harassment. But what does actually have an impact on it is promoting more women. Um, but it's gonna be very hard to change that paradigm if a lot of men are leaning out and women are losing out on that critical relationship capital that's so critical to advancement in the workplace. Thanks, Brandy. Um, all right, let's start with your last point about um, men's reluctance to adopt uh, the Mike Pence rules. Um, and it sounds to me like you call it some sort of abnormal fear of women that's driving it. Um, why do you call it abnormal? Um, I think they used to have no fear of women. In other words, that this adoption is something new as it reflects, um, I guess, their legal and uh, perceived change in the risk calculus. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so I, I think that, that that is exactly the issue, Larry. It's about the risk calculus. And, you know, if you – I understand, certainly when you read these headlines, um, there – seems like there's so much to lose, right? Um, but I guess what I feel like is underlying a lot of that fear when it comes up is really fear about false accusations, right? Um, and false accusations are pretty rare. There was an article um, last year, again, Harvard Business Review, now I sound like a show for them, but, um, uh, but uh, they... Uh, uh, did a, a, a recap or kind of a, a what is the legacy of Me Too? And uh, one of the things that was in that article was showing that false allegations are, are fairly rare and that men are actually more likely to be victims of sexual assault than they are to be wrongly accused of it. But I would bet that 
many more men spend a lot more time thinking about how can I avoid being falsely accused of sexual harassment than they spend thinking about how can I protect myself against sexual assault. Uh, so I do think it's a risk calculus. I think the risk is a little bit overblown. I realize that may not be reassuring to you where you're sitting. Um, but I, I think that in all sorts of different parts of our lives, uh, we attribute um, incorrectly <laughs> the, the amount of risk, whether it's driving on the Long Island Expressway or other, other things. And I think that this is one of those places where the risk, um, uh, the risk calculus calculus is is uh is not right <laughs> we just just um risk preference is a utility function you know we different people have different risks some people um during covid for example refused to leave the house other people were willing to walk around without masks on uh people have different you know risk preferences sure. um, i guess what would you say to somebody who says um you know in the past people have commented that I have been um, a little aggressive with women. And so I've decided as a matter of practice to kind of um, disassociate with myself with uh, women in the workplace. Um, what are people who have, I'll call it, e example you gave was people who are, have no problems but don't understand their, uh, don't appreciate that. But let's imagine someone has some problems. Uh, what would you advise that individual, that man? Yeah. Um. <laughs> Well, one thing I think it's very hard to be an effective leader in the corporate workplace if you're not mentoring, interacting, um, treating women on your team the same way that you treat other men on your team. Um, so that may not be uh, the most persuasive thing to say, but I do think that it's not possible to be a good leader if you don't do that. But what I would also want to know is more about, um, you know, what they're referring to, like what what did happen? What were what were the examples of making someone uncomfortable? Is there, um, you know, you know, one thing I have advised um, some executives who have been uncomfortable. You know, they certainly have had women colleagues, um, classmates that they've kept in touch with, is to talk with them um, informally about, you know, what do you think about this situation? What's your advice? How should I handle it? Yeah, I think that one of the challenges of the kind of environment that we're in right now is it's really hard to have those conversations. Um, and I think we're really missing out on that because people are so afraid of like blundering into a bad situation. There's no discussion at all. Um, so again, I think it's more conversation, more seeking advice. Unfortunately, at least, you know, what I've seen is people are so afraid of saying or doing the wrong thing that they say nothing at all and they don't ask questions um, and everyone is, you know, retreating to their corners and that's not so good. So I try to encourage more conversation, more reaching across differences, whatever that might be. Um, but, you know, I, I will say that, you know, many people do find that that challenging, particularly now. So I think a more, um, if we could be a little more generous uh, in terms of our interactions with people and not quickly ascribe it to, you know, for example, um, you can say um, that someone, you know, that that joke was 
sexist or whatever, it doesn't mean that person is a sexist. But I think right now it's very hard to divorce sometimes behavior from the person's character. And I, I worry uh, that the consequence of less conversation and less really digging into these difficult topics is going to be less understanding across differences. You mentioned, Larry, can I, can I jump in with a, a follow-up on that? This is Dan Willingham. Uh, thanks. Uh, Brandy, I, I, I wonder if you could contrast uh, the two factors that we've just been talking about with what you ended with in your six-minute presentation. So we've sort of been talking about men feeling like women are kind of unpredictable uh, and I'm afraid I'm going to be charged. And then also I'm a little, I, I maybe don't know exactly how to act and so I'm fearful for that reason. But then I, you, you mentioned at the end of your talk, and I've heard this from sociologists, that there is this phenomenon where if you get enough women in an organization, there does seem to be some tipping point where suddenly incidences of harassment seem to dramatically drop, which indicates like all of a sudden the guys are learning really quickly. And it, it, I can't help but feel like slightly suspicious that these guys are saying, gee, I just don't know what to do. It's like, that's not really the issue. It's really about social norms. So sorry, I sort yeah. of inserted my opinion there, but I'd love to know what the expert thinks about this. Yeah, well, no, and I think if I remember correctly, you come from the field of psychology. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, so I think um, I, I, I love hearing your insight about it because that seems right to me. But I think... Um, what they would say is it's partly, it's often, and especially in the workplace, it's about power and power imbalances and dynamics. And so part of um, when you have more women in the workplace and more particularly have them in kind of the core critical jobs, not just, you know, as support people or whatever, um, that's partly that, that uh, having less of a power imbalance is, is, is part of it. Um, so, but I feel like we then end up in this sort of chicken and egg problem because if you have more men um, withdrawing from uh, uh, mentoring and sponsoring women, we're not yeah. going to see the kind of progress we need to, to have to change that. But it really, in that case, I think it's really partly an expression of that power imbalance. And I should say too, you know, because we only had six minutes, I really, I did paint with a very broad brush. And to say that there is a lot of research that shows that uh, a lot of men are victims of sexual misconduct in the workplace, not as much as women. Um, but for example, uh, the book that I mentioned, Sylvia Ann Hewlett, uh, they did a big research of white collar professionals. And uh, in that research, she found that over 20% of black men had reported being uh, sexually harassed or a victim of sexual misconduct in the workplace. So I think, again, that partly gets at that power issue. And so I think that's part mm -hmm. of why when organizations where you have more women and it's kind of the norm that men and women are it's like, you know, sharing power uh, might be why you see fewer incidents. Mm -hmm. Can I go to a different question about dating in the workplace? Um, you mentioned that Airbnb has a policy. You can ask them out once and that's it. Um, but most firms are pretty silent on the matter. Right. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, what, what, what are the current social norms? What should you expect? You know, I joined Fallon Brothers in 1987, and in my analyst class, uh, there was enormous amount of dating going on within that group, and some of them got married. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So if, if your child was going to join uh, the Goldman Sachs Financial Analyst Program, 
uh, and they were a boy or a girl, what would you tell them about asking uh, out the, the other members of their class or even asking out people who are of different power dynamic? Uh, right, right. Yeah, so, I mean, you're exactly right, Larry, and that's why I think it's better more information, more discussion of potential scenarios is what companies should be doing, and many of them are. So the first thing I would tell my, my kid to do is find out what the policy is um, because a lot of companies have become more specific. So obviously many companies, uh, the, the, the bright line rule is no dating within a reporting relationship. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's usually very clear. And then I find what else? I mean, the problem with the power stuff too is that um, when you do have relationships in the office that, you know, kind of a boss subordinate one, there's even if it's, you know, it's consensual and it's not, say, um, the company doesn't have a policy against it, um, it can be really corrosive um, to the culture because then you hear all sorts of speculation about and usually, you know, it's the woman who's junior and the boss is male, all sorts of speculation about, you know, if she gets a promotion, why? Um, and so I would really discourage my kids from dating, like, in that kind of uh, power differential because there's just a, a – it's not great for um, anyone's reputation, but peers, sure. And I guess I should, in the interest of full disclosure, say that I met my husband when we were summer associate, uh, you know, interns at a law firm. Um, so uh, – but we were peers. So I think that's uh, a little more uh, typical, right? Well, I mean, I, I also, um, my wife also worked at Solomon Brothers with me, so I'm also uh, on a peer situation. And I just, it does <laughs> trouble me that, um, you know, if we really discourage um, dating in the workplace, that it, it's too bad because there are a tremendous number of fantastic people where you spend a lot of time right. and have some more interest. And, and it's going to happen. It's going to happen whether you have a rule about it or not. So why not provide people in the guardrails? And that's what I would say is the thing that I heard the most in my conversations with companies and executives in the immediate aftermath of Me Too. People wanted guardrails from, you know, very mundane things like, can I still hug my coworker? I'm a hugger to, you know, obviously more serious things. So what the trend that I see with many organizations is going towards the side of more information, more hypotheticals, more scenarios. So I know we talked about how most sexual harassment training is not effective, but what is effective is when you have kind of interactive sessions where you use scenarios from your own company, obviously changing the names, but really, um, you know, addressing the things, the real things that are happening instead of just having a very blanket, admonitory, don't do this, don't do that. Um, uh, people are really hungry for information and also the, 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 the nuance and, and recognizing that th this is what happens in the workplace. So how can you mitigate the risk and um, uh, make sure that people know what, what the rules are? Randy, thank you. We're going to go to our final speaker now, Nicholas Barron, who's a senior fellow at Peterson Institute to discuss European politics, uh, Brexit, and European banks. Go ahead, Nicholas. Thanks, and thanks for having me. Do you hear me? Of course. Perfect. Yep. Uh, thanks very much. Um, I know I'm not supposed to give an, intro, uh, an introduction, but uh, uh, last night John Williamson died. He was one of the founding fathers of the Peterson Institute where I worked together with Google. 
uh, and I cannot help uh, saying he was a great man. Um, EU politics, uh, I, so I'm an observer of all these things, and my impression is that uh, we really see a, a discrepancy between the kind of media coverage of EU politics, certainly in the international English-speaking press, which is all about you know, the rise of populism and how Le Pen will beat Macron and uh, things like that, and the reality, which is that essentially it really looks like peak populism happened somewhere around five years ago, in the late 2010s. Um, and uh, there are many different threads to this, but essentially it looks increasingly like the uh, European Union has gone through a decade of existential crisis, the Eurozone crisis, uh, the refugee crisis, Brexit, uh, also COVID-19, of course, but that cycle seems to be uh, trending towards the less existential. Uh, basically, the scenario in which these shocks, whether they're internal or external, would lead to a breakup of the Eurozone or an unraveling of the EU look increasingly uh, improbable. And I say that even uh, whatever happens with the forthcoming German Constitutional Court judgment on uh, the next generation EU decision, which some of you probably uh, are paying attention to. So, um, and indeed, I just mentioned next generation EU. I guess many here are not uh, familiar with that jargon, but this is a decision made in July last year by the European Union to uh, engage in a fairly large, even so everything is dwarfed by the Biden stimulus these days, but fairly large uh, program of debt issuance at the European level, which is completely unprecedented in those volumes and transfers across member states, which represents also completely unprecedented risk sharing and loss sharing, um, which is really a game changer for the whole financial architecture of the, of the European Union. So for lack of time, I'm not expanding on this. I will just say uh, being French and because Larry and I have regular discussions about French politics, that this to me also applies to the French election next year. I'm certainly not predicting that Macron will be re-elected, even so in my book that's a baseline scenario, uh, but there is a lot of uncertainty. What I certainly would say is that even if Macron loses, that doesn't mean Le Pen wins, and even tail risk if Le Pen wins the presidency, that doesn't mean there is a radical government given our system of government under the Fifth Republic. So basically the baseline scenario here with a high degree of confidence is one of the moderate, uh, very EU-compatible government uh, whatever uh, the uh, uncertainties of the elections. As for EU banks, I will just say that uh, here too there's a contrast with the previous decade uh, because the capital levels of EU banks have been significantly increased in the few years before the COVID-19 shock and therefore uh, there are a number of uncertainties and risks uh, linked of course to insolvency problems with uh, companies across the EU. but a scenario of financial fragility like we had, say, 10 years ago, is really not the baseline at this point. So, so I think if there are bank failures, it will be mostly idiosyncratic. Um, the, we can discuss what would be the response to a scenario of financial fragility, but I don't see it as very likely. And I would also say that the banking policy framework in the EU is uh, unfinished business. There is a so-called banking union, which is a halfway house. but the long-term impact of what I mentioned before, the next generation EU programs, the fact that we have now have EU bonds 
as effectively a reference asset for the um, European financial system, also has a significant read across for the banking sector because it means that the number of issues of risk sharing uh, of the public safety net uh, for the banking sector are redefined by this emergence of EU bonds as a reference asset. She hung up Finally, on, uh, on Brexit, uh, there are so many things to, be, things to be said about Brexit. I will just say uh, very uh, succinctly that A, Brexit was orderly, which was not necessarily to be taken for granted. It was, uh, it was well prepared, not only by the private sector firms, which of course did most of work, but uh, also by the authorities, especially the Bank of England and the European Central Bank, which appear to have worked very cooperatively in the preparation of the exit of the UK from the single market, which for the financial sector was really the main event on January 1st. I also believe it will, it doesn't look very good for the City of London uh, at this point, because they had a mix of synergies between being a non-shore center for the EU and the competitive offshore center for the rest of the world, and these synergies are completely changed by the fact that the City of London now is an offshore center, not just for Asia or the US, but also for the uh, European landmass. Uh, now, there may be offsetting mechanisms, and what the City of London uh, will lose in terms of financial business um, certainly is not going to be the gain of the European continent. The, the European continental financial centers will gain some, but probably not everything that the UK is losing. Uh, some of the uh, activity will move to other parts of the world. But I think uh, at this point, really, those two points are what strikes me, the orderliness of the transition, but also the somewhat bleak prospects for the City of London, uh, certainly uh, not be going to be as dominant going forward as it had been in the previous two, three decades. I'll stop here. Thank you, Larry. Great. So this, uh, what happens next got started because uh, COVID was a uh, topic and we didn't understand how COVID was going to affect our lives. And so I, I think I'll, I'll start my questions with COVID-related stuff. Um, so we had Brexit and we now have the UK and we have Europe. And we, we've got some vaccines and we need to get that distributed uh, on a supranational basis. And it looks like so far that Europe is struggling to get vaccines into the arms of its citizens. Um, the UK has done a much better job, um, and they appear to be very thankful that they that they've turned this into a nation-state problem and not a supranational problem. Um, you open by saying that there is no existential crisis in the EU currently, and I would put back to you, do you think that the vaccine itself or the lack of distribution of vaccine could turn into an existential crisis when the rest of the world gets going and the EU uh, is still struggling? I mean, the current picture right now is that there are out there performers, the UK, Israel, and uh, increasingly the US. Europe is lagging behind, but just by a few weeks. Uh, and the rest of the world is lagging behind a lot. So uh, I'm simplifying, of course, but that's uh, uh, a broad brush depiction. So these few weeks of lag between uh, Europe versus the UK and also to some extent the US are very painful for Europeans because during those few weeks, they benchmark themselves and they see that they're underperforming. Uh, now, if you look at the trends of the vaccination campaign in, in uh, Europe, basically this phase will be over in two or three months time at the very latest. 
And at that point, we'll be facing a different set of problems, which uh, may be trickier in a way, which is how to vaccinate people who don't want to take the vaccine and how that landscape will shape up differentially between the US, the UK, and uh, the European Union. Nobody knows at this point because we're not yet in that phase. But basically what I'm trying to say here is that I think the last two months have made the UK look good and the EU look bad, no question, and the rollout of the vaccine has been too slow in the EU compared to what it should and probably could have been. By the way, this is not because decisions were made at the EU level. Uh, the UK just had advantages, which it would have had even if the EU didn't exist. But um, I think that's a very temporary picture, and we'll soon be in a different phase, both in terms of the concrete rollout of vaccination and the challenges of COVID-19, and also in terms of the political fallout. Another aspect of COVID that was interesting in the European was um, at the beginning of, the, of COVID, there were certain uh, drugs, certain treatments that were scarce. And certain nation states announced that they wouldn't allow the transfer of these drugs between other uh, European sovereigns. Um, you know, we were thinking of this as the United States of Europe, and all of a sudden, um, sort of like you know, here in the United States, Cuomo was limiting uh, where those vents were going. Um, how do you think about that intra-European concern and the reinvigoration of the nation state as related to those drugs? I don't see, frankly, a surge of nationalism in Europe right now. There is no indication of that. There is the continuation of the trend I have mentioned, which is that there is a lot of desire of public opinion to have the EU get its act together and provide common solutions, which is something different. Uh, and Europe is complicated and always messy, and it has a bad press, particularly because it doesn't have a press of its own. Uh, and uh, and, and that's, uh, that's, all that is structural. Now, if you look at export uh, vaccine nationalism and export performance, uh, as you, I'm sure you've seen this, these charts, right? I mean, there are three jurisdictions that have exported a lot of vaccine, uh, vaccines in the last few months, and these are China, India, and the EU. And there are two big jurisdictions which have not exported any vaccines, which are the UK and the US. So in terms of the, the whole narrative of uh, vaccine nationalism, there has been uh, in my view, a certain gap, and, certain, and, and I'm not saying that to say Europe does it right. I, I'm appalled by some mercantilist impulses or protectionist impulses in Europe, including in France. But, but I think if you look at the big picture, uh, Europe has, to, uh, has, has had to juggle some really difficult trade-offs between vaccinating its own people and exporting the stuff. And I think this echoes the previous episode that, Larry, you were mentioning. Uh, and, uh, and, and when you look at the way those traders have been dealt with in, uh, for example, the UK or the US, there has been actually much more of an emphasis on um, uh, giving priority to the locals. A new topic. Um, we had Axel Weber speak at one of my conferences, and he mentioned that if the only way the European Union will work is if it's a fiscal union. And that was an anathema to the German taxpayer, because what it really means is a transfer from the north to the south. Um, you opened your talk by mentioning that um, in this crisis, they issued substantial amounts of European-level debt, and then they did transfer uh, money from north to south. Um, do you think this is a one-time event related to a COVID crisis? Do you think this can continue indefinitely? Um, and do you think this could potentially result in fracture? 
So first, they haven't done it yet, and that's why I mentioned the German Constitutional Court in Karlsruhe, because uh, there's a, a possibility of a bump on the roads here, and maybe we want to discuss that more in detail. Uh, assuming that the program is executed as planned, uh, which would be broadly my baseline assumption, indeed it is, uh, as the German Finance Minister Olaf Scholz has described it, a significant step out of the fiscal union. It's not yet a fiscal union, but it's a, it's, it's a quantum leap uh, in that direction, if the metaphor is uh, possible. Um, and um, I also would uh, qualify Axel Weber's uh, characterization because, you know, it's, it's, it kind of sells well to say Europe will disappear, break up, explode, die um, if, uh, if there is not this or, or that. But what we've seen in the last decade of existential crisis, as I mentioned, is EU resilience. I mean, it has seen a lot in the last 10 years, and it's still there. So it has lost a valuable member, which is the UK, that's for sure. But otherwise, it's very much alive and kicking. And actually, uh, to everybody's surprise, including mine, there has been no contagion effect or domino effect from the departure of the UK. So it really looks like the UK case was a, a one-off uh, and not a, a transferable experience to other member states. Now, given uh, your question on next generation EU, uh, it's, it's portrayed as a one-off program. This is a political compromise. This is also the legal basis on which uh, the program is uh, predicated in terms of, uh, you know, enabling clauses in the, in the European treaties. Uh, so it is an emergency program to uh, respond to a unique situation and not uh, per se expected to be uh, made permanent. Mm -hmm. Now, once you have done it once, and if it works to everybody's satisfaction, so that's a big if, uh, then uh, it will be difficult to resist the temptation to do it again. And that's why there is so much uh, debate in Germany, I think. The, the political trends we're seeing in Germany, including ahead of the election later this year, suggest there is no backlash against this, because the parties that get momentum, particularly the Greens, are pro-fiscal union, pro-European risk sharing, uh, but, uh, but there is a lot of debate. And, uh, and, and from that perspective, the discussion in the constitutional court can even be seen as welcome because, you know, there has to be assurance that what is, being, uh, what is going on is not in contradiction with the German constitution. And the constitutional court is the arbiter of this. So um, in, in, on paper, it's a one-off. The market reaction and my reaction and the reaction of most observers is to say, no, of course, it's not a one-off, especially if it works to general satisfaction. Uh, and, uh, and if it's not a one-off, it's a big change in the, in the general structure, financial structure of the European Union, but also political. Last week, uh, or I should say two weeks ago now, we had uh, Paul Embry discuss uh, the elite loathing of the working class in the UK. And we, you know, a few years ago, when we were last together, Nicholas, we, we commented about Macron wrapping himself around the Euro, the Euro flag. Um, and he then went on to win uh, the presidential election. But soon thereafter was some demonstration, an or, uh, seemed like an organic demonstrations of yellow jackets all over, all over France, which I think reflects you know, a, a distinguishing difference between those elites and working class people in France. Um, what happened with the yellow jackets? Um, have they just simmered down now because COVID makes being outside and demonstrating more challenging? And do you expect the Yellow Jackets to come back once COVID is finished? And will that be problematic for Macron and uh, better for Le Pen? 
Well, first thing, just in terms of the electoral dynamics, I think the portrayal, which I read a lot in the Financial Times and elsewhere, that if Macron loses, that means Le Pen wins, is just completely false. It's based on the... Uh, 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 an ignorant reading, frankly, of French politics, uh, the election system, and the scenario analysis. So uh, Macron has been pretty unpopular. Actually, his current popularity ratings are better than those of his two predecessors uh, at the same time of their term, but uh, they lost. They weren't re-elected, so that doesn't mean that he will uh, win in 2022. Actually, uh, interestingly, there is no president of the Fifth Republic, except de Gaulle, who was the first and the founder, who was re-elected unless they were in what we call in French vernacular cohabitation, which is when the prime minister is a political opponent. So uh, Macron being re-elected would, would be an outlier in the sequence of the French Republic because basically he would achieve what nobody since de Gaulle has achieved uh, politically. That doesn't mean he will lose, but that means the bar for winning is actually higher than you would expect uh, with reference, for example, of the, the U.S. system where two-term presidents are the norm. Um, you mentioned the yellow jacket. I think the yellow jacket movement itself, as you said, it was very bottom-up or organic. It yeah. no longer exists as such. But what does exist, of course, is dissatisfaction uh, in the French public opinion. And I don't think it's just a matter of... Uh, you know, the people versus the elite, because actually you can see threads of dissatisfaction also among the elite and uh, in many different, um, in many, uh, different uh, corners of society. So it's, uh, it's not that uh, one-dimensional. Uh, but, uh, but Macron knows that, and our system is a two-round system. So basically to win, he just needs to make it to the second round and to be less ugly than his opponent in the second round. And uh, so, so there, there is, it's very clear that there is not a groundswell of popular opinion uh, in favor of Macron, but uh, that doesn't mean he will lose the election. All right. Uh, this is the part of the show where we end on a note of optimism. Nicholas, why don't you start out with us? What are you optimistic about, in particular, uh, as it relates to Europe? Uh, I'm optimistic that the vaccine situation uh, will look much better in uh, as early as two or three months' time. And in the big scheme of things, that's not a very long time. Uh, and then we'll, we will take a step back and see that the EU has had a poor performance compared to other parts of the world in terms of COVID-19 response, measured by the starkest uh, metric, which is who, how many people died, but actually a much better performance than the US. Okay. Brandy, do you want to end on something optimistic? Uh, sure. I'll say um, when I was at Catalyst, I did a lot of workshops with companies around inclusive leadership, and it was kind of separate from the other trainings that companies would have. And now I would say that uh, being an inclusive leader is just being a leader, period. Uh, so now inclusive leadership is part of leadership development and so forth. Uh, the reason that makes me optimistic is I really believe that the best defense against sexual misconduct and harassment in the workplace is having an inclusive culture. Great. Dan Willingham. What are you optimistic about? Well, the silver lining for education from the pandemic is that there was a great deal of discussion about the potential role of technology and especially remote learning 
uh, in K-12 education for a couple of decades before the pandemic struck. And there were people who were incredibly gloomy and people who were incredibly optimistic. And what we've uh, been forced into is a crash course that finds the answer is somewhere in the middle. There's uh, some benefits and some costs. And we've, uh, again, it's certainly a silver lining, nothing we wanted to undergo. Uh, but we have learned a whole lot about um, how remote learning uh, works and doesn't work in K-12 education the past year. And just as of one quick follow-up on that, what worked? Uh, first of all, the technology worked much better than anybody expected it would work. Second, it worked for certain types of kids, kids who uh, are, to, uh, to bring in a psychological term, really well-regulated, kids who are really resourceful on their own, it worked brilliantly well for them, probably about 15, 20% of kids. Got it. Okay. Uh, with that, that ends uh, today's program. I do want to make a plug for our program next week. Um, Todd Benson, who has co-hosted a number of the shows with me before, will be back with two of his friends and mine, uh, Terry Kawaja and Rashad Tabekawala, who will be discussing uh, marketing and advertising industry. We will also have, from Stanford University, Rick Hanushek, who is an expert on education. Uh, he will also discuss the problems associated with COVID and uh, education, so following up from Dan Willingham's discussion today. And then our final speaker is Gregory Koger, who is head of the political science department at the University of Miami and he has just written a book on the history of the filibuster, which is currently under attack. All right, with that, uh, that ends today's program. And uh, stay with us for next week, and we'll find out what happens next. Thank you, and goodbye.